Hi, it's Eric again. If it feels like I'm always asking you for money, it's because I'm always asking you for money. That's because producing a high-quality podcast like Making Gay History costs a lot. Between ten dollars and $20,000 for each episode, for the audio and all the extra resources and archival photos you'll find on our website. One way to help us keep bringing LGBTQ history to life through the voices of the people who lived it is to join our Patreon community, $5 a month or $60 a year. And for that, you get a front row seat to my interviews with present-day history makers, behind-the-scenes production conversations, and delicious clips from my archive that we couldn't include in regular episodes. Right now, we have 200 Patreon followers. That's just a fraction of our many thousands of listeners. Can you help us double that by the 55th anniversary of Stonewall this coming Pride Month? We can't do what we do without all our supporters. And if you aren't one already, I hope you will be soon. Or, if you are already, get one of your friends to sign up to join our Patreon community at patreon.com slash makinggayhistory. That's patreon.com slash makinggayhistory. Or just go to makinggayhistory.com and hit the Patreon subscription button on our homepage. Thanks so much. Now, on to the episode you've chosen to hear. I'm Eric Marcus, and this is Making Gay History. And we're back with the second part of my interview with Gino Leary. In part one, you heard Jean talk about her time at a convent and about the now legendary conflict at the 1973 Gay Pride Rally in Washington Square Park in New York City. We're skipping ahead four years here, but making big leaps ahead in the struggle for LGBT rights. On March 26, 1977, Jean O'Leary went to the White House. It was a big deal. It was the first time gay activists met members of the president's senior staff inside the White House. It was just 12 years after Frank Kameny led the first protests outside the White House gates. Jean's contact inside the White House was Midge Costanza, a top White House aide to President Jimmy Carter. What no one knew was that Jean and Midge were in a relationship at the time. It was a detail that Jean asked me to leave out of my book because Midge was still in the closet. After I interviewed Jean, I called Midge and asked if I could write about her relationship with Jean. But as Jean had warned me, Midge said she was saving that for her autobiography. I spoke with Midge again 10 years later when I was working on the second edition of my book and got the same answer. Midge Costanza died in 2010. It's no longer a secret that she was gay, so you'll hear my discussion with Jean about her relationship with Midge being off the record and my obvious disappointment about having to keep that secret. So we're back at the Ivy restaurant. It's a perfect, soft Los Angeles evening. My tape recorder sits in the middle of the table in the glow of a votive candle. Jean never forgets that it's there. I press record. Take one, side two, interview with Gina Leary. So in 1977, how did the White House meeting come about? Right. Um, you had contacts with the oh, White plenty, House. Oh, plenty. Plenty, yeah. Okay. Yes, yeah, so it had a lot of, of contacts with the White House, actually. Um, our main contact was Midge Costanza, who um, I had worked with on the platform committee issues uh, long before Carter got elected and then during the whole election campaign. And so we had built a very good relationship. And um, when she got in the White House, I called her up and I said, it's time, Midge. 
it's time. Those were the exact words. That was the, that was the name of our newsletter at the time, um, N NGLTF or NGTF in those days. And uh, what was her reaction when you said that? She said, "Well, I've only been here a week." No. <laughs> okay. You long, waited long enough. That's right. Well, you know, before that, all we'd been is picketing. That's the closest we'd ever been able to get to the White House is picketing gates outside. So um, she said, "Well, okay, Jean, set up the meeting, and um, let me know, you know, when you would like to have the meeting, and who you would like to have included, and we will see what we can do." So we chose 12 issue areas that we thought would be pertinent to White House action and that they could help us with in some way or another. And then I called up 12 leaders around the country and asked them to prepare white papers on everything from immigration to Civil Rights Commission to um, prisons, Federal Bureau of Prisons. Um, we flew everybody in. I imagine this was very exciting. It was. Do you remember walking up to the gate at the White House and getting your ID card? Well, we had rehearsed the night before, and we were really very, very excited about going in there and having the meeting. What and, had you rehearsed? Well, we rehearsed how we were going to give our presentations and to make sure that everybody was coordinated. This was going to be, you know, uh, very professionally done. And none of us had been to the White House before. And so it was very thrilling. I don't remember exactly getting my badge, but I remember walking in and seeing the guards in the Roosevelt Room. That's where we had our meeting in the Oval Office. Our midget and I made out. <laughs> <laughs> it's off the record. It's off the record. <laughs> too bad. Yeah, really it is too really bad. too bad. She keeps saying that's going to be her second book. I know she's never even going to write her first, so it is too that's bad. That's really too bad. Yeah. Oh boy, is that too bad. <laughs> So Maybe if I beg her, I don't oh, know. No, she, she won't talk. Yeah, no, absolutely not, because um, she would never come out this way. Right. No. Of I mean, not. if she was if going she to come it, out, she'd, out no, she'd do it her way. Yeah. Right. Um, and so the exciting part after we'd presented everything was coming out on the White House front lawn and being greeted by all three channels, national television. And when gays got on television in those days, it was like, you know, once a year maybe for the news, maybe a special program here or there. But this was real hard breaking news that we had had a meeting at the White House. And uh, I think one of the reporters asked Midge, well, did Jimmy Carter um, know that uh, you were having this meeting? She said something funny like, yeah, as soon as he found out, I'd pulled Jean into the ladies' room. And she asked me if I could have a meeting at the White House. He took off for Camp David, just like that. <laughs> But it was history. We definitely made history. And there was real solid follow-through on all of those meetings. We had follow-through with the heads of all the departments that would be involved in each of these issue areas. And Midge has a whole list of what those issues are. Immigration, Federal Bureau of Prisons, visas, um, gay families, um, parents, adoption. I think that was as far as we'd gotten on the parent issue or the family issue. Um, the Civil Rights Commission, U.S. Civil Rights Commission, and all the things that they could do, and it got so intricate. Um, you know, it wasn't just like well, they should include us. We went to meeting after meeting after meeting with the Civil Rights Commission, for instance, and they had us come and testify. Now, gay people had never done this before. And this was groundbreaking, and we made some changes. And, 
know, we're able to implement a few things, but mostly we were raising consciousness. There were some permanent things that got implemented, but all the gains that we made have been sort of wiped out now um, since Carter because it's been eight years of Reagan and its Republican administration. Now, when you say raise consciousness, what did, what is that, what did that entail? Just sitting down and, and, and telling these people what the problems were at the border and um, why people should be able to come into the country and they shouldn't be kept out because they were gay. Um, and what happened with their families and how they would get, sometimes get split up from their families or sent back home or the rest of their family stayed here in the country or someone would be trying to visit and their, their um, gay identification card would fall out of their wallet or their suitcase would be opened up and they'd see um, a pair of earrings or uh, something like that and they'd be detained. We got, finally got a statement from the Surgeon General on the immigration issue. We had him issue something to all the border guards saying that gay people should be allowed into the country now. But each little border guard is like their own individual little god, so it was institutionalized, but it wasn't um, enforced well enough. Symbolically, what did that trip to the White House mean to you? Well, to the community, to the whole community. It meant um, that... Um, we had been recognized by the highest institutionalized establishment of our country. And for gay people who were looking for signs, for symbols, for stature, for recognition, for anything along those lines that in those days would say, would, would um, make the lifestyle valid, it was a, a wonderful breakthrough. For you, as I, 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 I don't know if I asked the question, what did it mean for you and you said for the community? Yeah. Did it mean that for you as well? Or was that not something you were looking for at that point? Um, I think I was more impressed politically. And this one was high visibility rewards um, and a feeling of, well, making it to the top. And you know, Until the end of the administration. Until Midge quit. Because she would pick up a phone and make one phone call and we'd have the, um, the head of immigration and naturalization at the meeting, you know, Castillo at that time, or Norman, what's his name, the head of the Bureau of Prisons. They didn't want to be there. They had knew that they better show up and, and listen to all this and really try to make some changes. Why did they know they had to show up? Because the White House was calling. And the White House has a lot of power. This big jump in progress came about because there was somebody on the inside who was committed to the issue, who was supported from the top. Uh, and I guess that's the only way that change will come about. Well, change comes about many ways. Many, many ways. And they all interlock and work with each other. It's like somebody has to break the eggs and somebody has to make the omelets. And some change you do from the inside, some you do from the outside. And then there's the nuances of how inside is inside. But one thing that you always have to be careful about when you're making changes, I think, from the inside is to make sure that that person that you're working with has enough information, enough support, enough conviction themselves, because you've convinced them and given them all the arguments that they can then take it to the next step. Because if they're convinced, but they, they don't know how they're going to articulate this beyond here, um, then nothing is going to happen. Did Midge have that conviction? Yes, she did. Did she have the support? Yes. It's the kind of support we've always had. You know, it was sort of mild-mannered. Um, I remember when um, she went in to ask Carter about um, 
my appointment to the International Women's Year Commission. And he said, well, does she have to use her title? <laughs> and Midge said, sir, that'd be like asking you if you had to use yours, you know. So it was, they were uncomfortable with it, but it was like, yeah, uh-huh, okay. And she told him the story about how I'd switch my vote for him at the Democratic Convention in New York and that I you know, voted for him under very heavy duress and pressure from polit political politicians that I had been on the Udall slate and you know, committed to that on the first vote. But I said to myself, I have a choice to make here and I want to be one of the very few people, maybe the only person, who's going to be able to have access to this president and the White House. Do I want to be voting for Udall or do I want to be voting for Jimmy Carter? I'm voting for Jimmy Carter. And that is what she said, and that's what he said. Okay, you know, politicians understand that. And I think sometimes our gay community don't, does not understand at all the political process and what you have to do and how you have to play it in order to get someplace. Some people understand it and hate it. I understand it and love it and believe that it's a real way that we make progress. But now you do. <clears throat> Did you in 19... 73 as well? Yes. You did. You always did. I always did. I've had an instinct for it. There was one other part of this story that Jean asked me to leave out of my book to protect Midge's secret. The first time I asked Jean about how the White House meeting happened, she told me to turn off my tape recorder. And then Jean said, I rolled over in bed and said, Midge, we're going to the White House. Jean could see the shock on my face. But before I could say anything, she said, you can't use it. <laughs> then Jean gave me a look that said, don't bother begging. And I didn't. I turned my tape recorder back on and asked the question a second time. And that's when Jean said for the record that she'd called Midge on the phone. I'm guessing there are people who might say, what's the difference? To me, there was a big difference, and I'm glad that I lived long enough to share the truth about exactly how this landmark White House meeting came about. I'm sorry that Jean and Midge didn't live to tell the story themselves. And I'm sorry that Midge had to so carefully guard her secret. But she knew, at least for much of her career, that she could never have done what she did, could never have been Jimmy Carter's advisor, and could never have invited gay activists to the White House if anyone knew that she was gay. Jean O'Leary died of lung cancer in 2005. She was only 57. At the time of her death, Gloria Steinem said in a statement that Jean, quote, helped the women's movement to recognize the universal cost of homophobia and the gay movement to see that marginalizing the voices of lesbians would only diminish its power. To learn more about Jean's life and her many contributions to the LGBTQ civil rights movement, including co-founding National Coming Out Day, please visit makinggayhistory.com. As always, I'm grateful to my team for bringing this podcast to life. Many thanks to Sarah Birmingham, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Casey Holford, Jonathan Dozier-Zell, and Will Coley. And a special thank you to our listeners from around the world who have sent emails and tweets and direct messages of support and encouragement. We love hearing from you. Making Gay History is a co-production of Pineapple Street Media with assistance from the New York Public Library's Manuscripts and Archives Division. Season two of this podcast is made possible with support from the Ford Foundation, which is on the front lines of social change worldwide. 
And if you like what you've heard, please subscribe to Making Gay History on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. So long, until next time. Thank you.